Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from Beijing. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. Today, we're talking about China's efforts to develop what Joseph and I called soft power, the power of attraction as opposed to coercion or payments. Along the way, we'll discuss China's massive new investments into satellite news networks, the Confucius Institutes and controversy in the United States surrounding those, Beijing's forays into Africa and Latin America, and the appeal, such as it is, of Chinese culture internationally. Of course, no discussion about Chinese soft power would be complete or timely, without some mention of the Shanghai Expo, which launched earlier this week. And we'll have an audio postcard from Adam Minter, a freelance journalist based in Shanghai, who's been covering that better than anyone. Jeremy Goldcorn of Danway.org joins us today after a long absence. Welcome back, Jeremy, and good to see you again. Thanks, Kaiser. How was your holiday? Very good. Sunny. We were also joined again by Gadi Epstein, bureau chief for Forbes here in Beijing, and he's become something of a regular on the podcast, which we're really delighted about. How are you, Gadi? Good. Thanks, Kaiser. And today, finally, we've also got Evan Osnos, a staff writer for The New Yorker. Welcome, Evan. Thanks, Kaiser. Uh, while I've got Evan here, actually, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about electric bikes. Now, Evan and I are both avid e-bikers and members of an infamous outlaw e-biker gang that's been terrorizing the streets of Beijing and slinging meth. Evan on his little Turtle King and me on my moped-looking black thing with the cute wire basket, which I think you guys saw parked downstairs. These things are everywhere now in Beijing, so let's talk a little bit about the pros and the cons. Evan, tell us about your little turtle king and how you fell in love with that, that, that creature. I did not set out, actually, to be an e-bike rider. It was sort of an act of desperation. I just finally could not bear sitting in traffic any longer. So last fall, I went out to Tsinghua. There's a whole line of shops that have set up building their own kinds of bikes, bargained a bit, and came home with one, and I've basically fell in love with the thing. Did you go with the lead-acid battery, or did you actually... I uh, went with the lead-acid battery, but I hope I aspire to move up to the lithium battery. That's right. Our, our buddy Alex Wong over at the Natural Resources Defense Council, he got the big Turtle King with the lithium-ion battery. I mean, that's that's the catalog. He said it was professionally irresponsible for him as an environmentalist not to have the lithium battery, and he has a point, actually. Yeah, right. Can, can I ask you, gentlemen, how much do they cost? Oh, I, mine was only like 2300 quai. So and yeah, if you want the, the green version, the lithium battery? Twice that. The battery costs the same as the bike if you go for the lithium battery. But I have the cheap lead-acid battery, which is about 400 renminbi. So, I mean, that cancels out any any, any sort of carbon uh, halo effect that you might have other, otherwise had. Right? Well, it, it turns out, and there is, in fact, a study on this, as I was uh, lording this statistic over my fellow podcasters today, there is, in fact, a study that shows that the amount of CO2 that is saved by riding an e-bike is about 50% versus the average bus rider or uh, motorcycle rider. Oh, nice. And which kind of e-bike did you get, Evan? I know Alex Wong got the, the Big little, Turtle King. Little Turtle King. Because I, I refuse to be judged by the size of my Turtle King. 
<laughs> and what do you think of your, of your It's actually great. I mean, the truth is it's small. It's easy. It literally requires no maintenance. It is not especially well made. I mean, it fell apart more or less the first day I got it. The, one of the brakes stopped working. A couple of the other things that you would generally consider to be important elements no longer function. But the thing works great, and it's still safe, and I get all over town with it. You're not a fan, are you, Gotti? You don't like these things much? I, I am actually a fan of e-bikes. I, I mean, I, I believe that they are a, a, a net good. Uh, I just am not a fan of uh, the obsession with e-bikes that develops once you purchase one. Oh, you mean the sanctimony? <laughs> <laughs> there's sanctimony. There's endless conversation. It's, uh, it's kind of like the, iPhones. Basically, yes, which I own. But what is your preferred mode of transport around Beijing, guy? I, uh, I'm actually recently uh, a bus rider in wow, Beijing. No, that's, uh, wow, that's, that's which apparently means I have a higher slumming. carbon footprint than if I was riding. It's the equivalent a, of taking the Concorde, apparently, depending on which kind of bus you're Very on. similar. Yeah, the Beijing bus. buses are very similar to the Concorde in terms of amount of fuel they burn, um, even the electric ones, strangely. What about you, Jeremy? What, what, how do you get around town these days? I have three means of transport, uh, subway, uh, bicycle, old-fashioned proper bicycle that gives you some exercise, which right. is quite a good benefit. And I actually drive uh, mostly to go to the countryside. You, you have uh, a car. I rent cars. Oh, you rent a car. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, one of the reasons why I do think e-bikes may actually uh, start really picking up in Chinese cities is that uh, having tried to drive inside the city – uh, on uh, several occasions, thinking that maybe it's easier or I'm just being lazy, I've realized that it has become a nightmare to drive in Beijing. Oh, really? You, you're just now realizing this? I mean, the numbers are actually pretty shocking. It's supposed to be that the number of cars are going to double in seven years. So even if there's a small degree of sanctimony that comes with the experience of the e-bike, I actually do think that everybody benefits ultimately if these things take off. Absolutely, because the nightmares, I mean, driving a car is different from taking a taxi. Taking a taxi, you get stuck in traffic. But if you drive a car, you have to park it. And that right. often means that you end up walking for half an hour because you can't find a parking place where you want to go. So, you know, if there's hopeful reduction of this kind of, uh, you know, environmental destruction and horrible traffic jams, I think it might be that Beijingers start feeling that it's just too much trouble to drive. China is still something like, what, 80, 90 percent of the market globally in e-bikes? Yeah. Why aren't they taking off in other countries? In the United States, they say that the problem in the United States is that basically people associate bicycles with exercise and not with transportation except for a very tiny fringe. So there's basically about 25,000 e-bikes in the United States. They think the number is going to go up over the next five years, you know, blah, blah, blah. They think they'll get to 200,000 e-bikes, but that's still just a tiny fraction of what they've got in China. In Europe, there's a much more viable prospect for them because people like the French evidently regard exercise as a virtue. Also, don't you think that Americans, I mean, even a small car is considered unmanly in the United right. States. You can't drive like a QQ, a, a Spark, a Chevy Spark. This I acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, the truth is I've already been mocked mercilessly by my American friends like Gotti Epstein. I would uh, like to just say in America we like to – we actually do fly the Concorde from point to point. You take it actually from Cleveland, I think, to Cincinnati. It's just a safer way to go. Uh, I think it's, it's time for a commercial message though from our sponsor. Oh, yes. This this podcast brought to you by Little Turtle King. Little Turtle King, getting you there when a sedan chair just won't do. (laughs) Thanks very much for that. Okay. Let's move on here. Um, That that was lots of fun. But uh, before we jump in with Soft Power, I actually want to read a little piece that I did for a um, similar discussion on the BBC's World Service, just sort of a starting point for our, our, uh, our conversation here. Is Beijing's global soft power charm offensive bearing fruit? 
it's tempting to look at China's ever closer ties with resource-rich nations in Africa and Latin America and answer yes, but that's only part of the picture. The developed West remains stubbornly resistant to China's charms. Viewed from the capitals of Europe and North America, Beijing's PR efforts still look ham-fisted. Whoever's writing brand China's ad copy seems to have a terrible tin ear. The spectacle of the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympic Games was intended to showcase for us Chinese culture and innovation. Instead, it was as imposing as it was inspiring, only reinforcing the impression of China as a monolithic juggernaut. It's not just a matter of bad PR, of course. Chinese authoritarianism is just never going to square easily with the core values of the West's liberal democracies. After 30 years of an open door, the fact is Chinese culture has yet to make meaningful inroads in the West. It could be that this is just a function of wealth. After all, the Western craze for Japanese popular culture, from Kurosawa to karaoke, from minimalism to manga, peaked just when Japan's relative wealth did. I suspect that China, which is ever, uh, which is even richer cultural veins to mine, may become just as globally trendy as it closes the per capita GDP gap. Critical acclaim for the films of Jia Zhangke and the astronomical prices paid in New York and London in recent years for contemporary Chinese art may be only a hint at what's to come. Soft power is ultimately about attraction. Think of a country's attractiveness the same way you might an individual's. Yes, China's gotten a whole lot more attractive. It's making decent money now. It's hitting the gym. It's dressing a little better, and it's even trying to stop smoking. But China is still deficient in some of those things that make for real attractiveness. One of those is confidence. Sure, China's improving in that regard, too, but Beijing is still thin-skinned. It can't stop invoking a century of national humiliation at the hands of Western imperialism and indignantly claiming that this or that Western capital has hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. And as any personal ad will tell you, a sense of humor matters. I swear the Chinese, the Beijingers at least, have one, and a deep sense of irony to boot. But it's something that China, as a nation, all too rarely shows to the rest of the world. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, gentlemen, what is the state of brand China right now? Jeremy, you were actually just talking with uh, with the Ministry of Culture. You, you put on an event for them. You're helping them put together a website to, to promote Chinese culture abroad, right? Well, I, I think what branding lessons for them. Um, I mean, firstly, I, I think people in the Chinese government certainly are very aware that uh, brand China has uh, some serious issues. They range from the perception, the accurate perception of the place as a highly authoritarian regime, uh, to the perception of China as a place which makes junky products. Um, and there's a, an unfortunate lack of awareness of the riches of Chinese culture, both traditional and contemporary, I mm -hmm. think, uh, across the world. So I think, as you pointed out in your introduction to this piece, uh, brand China is not in a, in a great state right now. That said, I, I do think there are, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Japanese culture, you know, manga comics, etc. I mean, if one looks back at the 80s and the 90s, that was never really a mainstream thing, say, in the United States. I mean, if you were into manga, even now, if you're into manga comics, you're kind of a, a dorky dude, usually. Oh, it's really? Not... I mean, my impression is that it's pretty mainstream now. I mean, because you're a dork. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I am. Uh, okay. Well, uh, not, I do think Brand anyone. China has, uh, I mean, The Onion, if I may cite the, the great authority, uh, recently you weighed may, in on this by uh, declaring that uh, China is expected to surpass the U.S. as the world's number Biggest one. Biggest asshole, right. 
Yes, yeah, by, by 2020. Right? Exactly. I think it'll do it next year. And I think that also obviously captures people's nervous, nervousness about China. I, you basically, you have this. Um, you have, I think you have a lot of people who don't know what to make of China. To, to speak from the U.S. perspective for a second, uh, China isn't is not the Soviet Union, but it is the biggest kind of rival on the block. It's a frenemy, basically. Sure. And sure. Um, you know, it's some it's a superpower that you have to engage with, that you respect their accomplishments. But you're not like, you might not like their personality or uh-huh. their high level of self-regard, but you have to sort of deal with them. And I think this is reflected in the recent issue with the Confucius Institutes as well. Uh, what is going on with the Confucius Institutes? Let's, um, has, has, have you, has anyone been following this story at all? In the San Gabriel Valley where there's this huge number of Chinese people, of course, uh, there's this thing called Confucius Classrooms that are sponsored by the Hanban, basically the government organization that's charged with promoting the learning of, of Mandarin, of learning of the Chinese language internationally. And it's been raising a lot of hackles, uh, surprisingly in San Gabriel Valley, where there are so many Chinese immigrants. Uh, there was a, a big editorial in, in their local paper, the San Gabriel Tribune, uh, that was decrying the the, uh, the idea that they were going to be sending Chinese teachers over from communist China to, uh, to teach alongside, to teach Mandarin Chinese alongside the teachers they already have. Of course, the teachers are happy to have these, you know, people they don't need to pay that, that, that are going to come over there and really do speak the language well. But what's the the source of of, of the resistance to this? Well, I do think that this is one of the tensions that's at the heart of the Confucius Institute model, which is that from the beginning it has been – it's been effectively administered where they take money and they make it fairly open-ended about what you want to use it for. And that means that in a lot of cases, if you've got good local administration, they put it into Chinese language education or cultural programming. But in those moments when the source of the money becomes an issue, there really is no other leg for them to stand on. It is, after all, an aggressive arm of – the Chinese foreign policy. Well, it's not like they're teaching them the theory of the three represents or of harmonious society and, har- and scientific development. But, what, but, no, but there what, are, is there objectionable content going on? There inevitably are moments where they have to talk about things like Chinese territorial integrity and the map of China. And I have friends who work at, China, at Confucius Institutes in the United States on the, on the education side. And their strategy has been from the beginning to just avoid these kinds of issues as much as possible. They just – they don't want to engage with it, which is – logical. The problem is, is that sometimes these issues come up from the outside. If the community, right. for instance, says we don't want this, then you run into a real problem. So why is China so different from France, Germany, and Spain? I mean, all of these countries, they have the Alliance Francaise, oh, the, the Quixote, Quixote Institute, the Goethe Institute. Or the U.S., uh, which has uh, plenty of people teaching in, you know, sure. in Chinese We've schools here. Score, right? It does, but it yeah. doesn't. the U.S. does not have a, an organized government initiative to promote U.S. culture. Well, the, the Peace Corps. Right? The Peace Corps. I mean, I, I absolutely think that the Confucius Institute is a logical model. I think it's been very successful in a lot of places. But I think it goes back to what you were saying before about comparing it to an individual. China's soft power is most effective when it doesn't look like it's trying too hard. And the Confucius Institute, when it's successful, is a quiet member of the community that is – providing a valuable service. And it's only when focus is put onto it that it's in the awkward position of having to, at the same time that it's doing these services, it does have to ultimately respond to Beijing. Right. And in the eyes of a hardened cynic, it would look like, you know, the Juche Institutes that North Korea (laughs) puts around the world. That's a little harsh. Your your reasonable person will realize it's not the case, but obviously you're going to have a few exceptions to that. I think the Confucius Institute have actually been remarkably successful, and it's, I've been surprised that there hasn't been more discussion about it from the beginning. I mean, it's really taken about seven years of that process for it to really start to become a controversy in the United well, States. And, and maybe we'll see this recent case in San Gabriel Valley as, as sort of an outlier. 
I mean, so far, the discussion that we've had here is focused entirely on uh, sort of America as a target for Chinese soft power. And that is, you know, easily the most difficult of all targets to reach. I passed around some readings before we, we sat down here, and one of them was from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And I thought that one of the most interesting things about there in looking at the results is that there's a real clear north-south division in the receptiveness to Chinese soft power. It seems to play a whole lot better uh, in the south, in the nominal south, the developing world. Right. And those those uh, countries in the developing world have um, strong you know, economic need, really, for a good relationship with China. I don't know but uh, aside from that, there are other things. I mean, like, you know, South Africa, which, you know, is one of the most developed countries in the de- developing world. I mean, our government is uh, the, the party in charge is the ANC. And they are part of a trifecta, which includes uh, COSATO, the most powerful trade union, Mm -hmm. and the Communist Party of South Africa. We don't have the same visceral fear of communism that you do in the United States. And I think the global south, uh, that, that is pretty much the case everywhere. There are very few countries, third world countries, south countries, whatever you call them, where there's this fear of communism that I think is behind quite a lot of the resistance to, say, the Confucius Institutes or any other Chinese soft power uh, initiative in the United States. Or, for that matter, a fear of technocratic authoritarianism in Chinese style. Right. I think it has as much to do with a sense of great power rivalry as it does with a sort of old sense of the Red Scare. I think that's the especially American... Hang on. Also, I think of China's neighbors. It's not a fear of ideology; it's a fear of their power and their, you know, economic influence. Their, you know, their regional influence. I thought one of the more interesting things I read was Ed Wong's New York Times piece the other day about Indonesia. I don't know if you guys saw this. I remember the first time I flew to Indonesia, uh, they passed around you know, instructions telling me that I wasn't allowed to bring in any Chinese medicine. Anything with written Chinese characters on it was was verboten in Indonesia. Now they're teaching Mandarin in, in Indonesian schools. Uh, looking at, at the Chicago Council study, it looks like Chinese popular culture is really making significant inroads into Vietnam. I'm going to be there in June. I guess I'll see for myself. I was in Cambodia a couple of years ago. Cambodia, after all, has a very deep-seated antipathy towards the Chinese because of the role the, that Beijing played in supporting the Khmer Rouge. But if you go around Phnom Penh these days, there are Chinese schools everywhere. And they're right. not state-sponsored. They're, in fact, just spontaneously popping up because there's a market for Chinese language much more than there is for English at the moment. It's pragmatism over their you know, social memory, I think. What well, I suppose that's always been the case with the United States in a sense. I mean, the world has welcomed the United States because, you know, you had the money. Right? Yeah, no wonder we find it threatening. It's a very familiar model in that way, I think. Yeah. I do think it's because you know, China has become a center of gravity um, in Asia. They do have the money. People come from around the region and from the U.S., and they bring back – you know, elements of culture. This is probably the same way that manga spread to dorks worldwide. Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, for the record, I do not like manga, and uh, <laughs> I, have, I have a whole sophisticated reason why I don't like Japanese anime, and it has nothing to do with hostility. Don't you? It's, it's the way they draw those eyes so damn big. You know, I'd like it, to retract my dork <laughs> comment and just apply it to myself. But it, it sounds to me essentially what we are all saying is that the the reasons that China, China's soft power is growing is because its hard power is growing. I mean, it's money. Uh, we, did, we haven't touched on military, but without those things, without the guns and butter, you don't have soft power. 
Yeah, there's actually a huge area in between hard power and soft power, which is economic power. I mean, that's when you're in Africa, if you go to the Democratic Republic of Congo right now, the reality is what it is that they're attracted to from China is that market and the appeal for obviously for minerals and for oil. So if you go to a country like that, I'll tell you, I spent uh, a weekend with a bunch of scholars from Africa two weeks ago, and there was a very clear breakdown between the American scholars who study the China-Africa relationship and the African scholars. And the American scholars were all saying, you're being exploited. You need to watch out. This is going to be a repeat of the 19th century. (laughs) And in fact, the African scholars were saying, you know what? You're not giving us enough credit. That's a really paternalistic way to look at this. We're actually aware of the cost and benefit American academics being paternalistic? Shocked. I know. I was shocked. shocked. I don't believe it. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too – I mean, we're go- this summer, uh, Howard French, I think he was probably the most singularly qualified person in the world uh, to, to talk on China in Africa, is going to be joining us in Seneca probably in June or, or July. And I hope, Evan, you'll be able to, to come on too. Uh, we'll have a couple of other people who – and Jeremy, of course, I mean, being a South African. So CCTV <clears throat> recently re- rebranded CCTV9 as CCTV News, and they've hired a bunch of Anglo-looking uh, – reporters who are now like they've got a bureau in dc they've got bureaus all over the u.s now what's going on with this i mean i, I understand they've got six billion dollars to play with uh, xinhua just announced that they're going to be launching uh, an al jazeera style international cable or satellite news network as well what's going on here well clearly they want to compete in the news business with and the world's leading they have prepared. a shot uh, I do. I think they do. I mean, it's going to be a long-term and slow uh, building process, I think. I think to use the soft and hard analogies again, they've got the hardware and the money, but the software in terms of people and training, I think, is a long way in coming. Yeah, I, mean, I so, think maybe is it just us expatriates who are living in China who snicker so badly and are always just sort of – snarky about CCTV9, even though, you know... No, I, well, let's look at I another model not from China. Look at Al Jazeera English. I mean, sure. it's a very laudable station. Absolutely. I, I, I enjoy watching it. They do features on things that no Western TV station will touch. Ten-minute yeah, long, in-depth features. Very, very good. But who do you know who actually watches it? I mean, you know, in Europe or America. It's not going to be very easy for China. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be a slow start. But I think for the same reason that they've had an effective entry into a lot of markets where ideology really isn't a hang-up for them, it's going to come down to the quality of their product. I mean, I think if they can produce a comparable product that rivals the AP television option, I mean, that's the, what I think is, the, is the, the challenge here is that they ultimately are going to have to try to edge out writers' television, AP television, and all of these tiny little markets, whether it's in Latin America or in Southeast Asia. That's, I think, where this battle is going to be fought. Okay. Also, I wouldn't underestimate, though, their ability to negotiate their way, to push their way into uh, onto cable networks or satellite networks, uh, you know, around the world. You know, in the long in the long run, I think they'll probably, I assume, they'll be aggressive about that and smart about that. Yeah, I think they'll probably be aggressively priced. I mean, I, I really see this as a pretty viable strategy for them. But it, if they start to make it look like it's an overt foreign policy. Um, prong, then it won't work. But if it if it can be uh, if it can be fairly uh, low impact, and then sure, it seems viable. And one has to also admit that the Chinese media has become very, very much more tolerant of, if not dissenting opinions, but a huge variety of opinions. I mean, you two have been on CCTV nine. You know that you can talk about stuff that would have been un- unimaginable five years Absolutely, ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I think the same applies for 
particularly the English language media. I mean, the Global Times, the China Daily, That's right. China Radio International, CCTV9. Uh, five years ago, I would not have imagined you'd be seeing stuff like this in, in, in state-owned media. So uh, the ability of Chinese media workers, as they used to be called, to adapt uh, shouldn't be underestimated. Well, I think this is part of a, self, a soft power strategy, too. They realize that the more critical they are about them or the more transparent they are, the better they're perceived. Um, it's the bad news that sort of generates good news. I think the the weakness for them is not on the everyday news. I think most of the time when it comes to covering a hurricane, they'll do just as well as any other outlet. It's when it hits that vulnerable moment, like when there is a big embarrassing news event in China. And if they drop the ball, then they really lose credibility with these new audiences right at the moment when they're trying to build them. That's right. And that's what they're ultimately going to be judged on. Yeah, I think if they don't look good covering their own earthquake, then it's hard to take them seriously covering. Whereas Al Jazeera co- covers the Middle East very well. In fact, I mean, they depending on your well, point of view, yeah. right? But they covered very aggressively. I mean, in a lot of these countries, Al Jazeera is very unpopular from the government's perspective, but it's very popular among the people because they're the only ones who are calling these governments to account. On a day-to-day basis, though, even if they don't succeed at home in you know commu- in having a good media strategy that is acceptable worldwide, uh, they uh, I think in a more subtle way on a day-to-day basis. Uh, could, you know, succeed in getting their message out through, you know, you, you see in like, you know, English language newspapers in, you know, in Africa picking up Xinhua as their wire service for a story. You can see the equivalent in TV. You know, they're going to produce a lot of content and people who need content cheaply will take it uh, in whatever language. Maybe I don't know how many languages they'll be getting into. Um, I want to move on really quickly to to talk about uh, popular culture, about film and music and and uh, and, and so forth. Really, in the post-war period, there's only been one cultural uh, soft power superpower, and that's, of course, the United States. I think it's, it's fair to say that its soft power uh, you know, dominance in the world has sort of advanced in lockstep with its technology. It is the, you know, the technological giant of the, of the telecommunications age. Uh, does China even stand a chance? I mean, it's, you look at, at the, the dominance, the lock that Hollywood has globally. I mean, does China stand a chance? Uh, what are the media in which China has a chance at actually succeeding? I mean, for a while, I think the great hope was film. You know, we saw Chen Kai-ge and Zhang Yimou really sort of making headway in the, in the 1990s. Now they're all sort of these, you know, these wire-flying, chop you know, epics, and it's it's sort of depressing. Well, they they need to free up their film industry, and they need to free up their their industries, their soft power culture industries in general from – you know, censorship and political sort of influence. Or Jeremy, do you think that's it? Do you think that it's 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 a matter of you know letting the creative talent flow? Yeah, I, I think uh, God, he's right. I mean, <clears throat> any film director, cartoon director, producer of any kind of audiovisual product, their first problem is getting it past the censors, and you can't just put a hundred people in a room and say make a hit for export, and uh, it's going to happen. They will try. They will try. Uh, but uh, I don't believe that I, I don't believe that will be successful. So I, I do think that until those uh, restrictions are, are, are greatly reduced, there's not much hope of China becoming a dominant film power, dominant animation power. I think when you look back at the films that have been successful abroad from China, they were the ones that started on the margins. I mean, it was Zhang Yimou and Chen Kaige when they were doing films that were not especially they were not welcomed by the establishment. And now, of course, it's people like. 
Jajang Ke, who's mm. doing films that you, are right on the about border. Him, is that right? Yeah, I wrote about him, and I'm very interested in this question of where he situates himself, either on the inside or on the outside. And he's put himself essentially right in the middle, right on the, the border between being a legitimate filmmaker and being a, a, an outsider. Well, filmmaker. he's trying to right, walk that third path. I mean, there's really all, always been two, two options available to you as a filmmaker. Either you go for the mainstream box office, you do a, a really super mainstream sort of rom-com for the Chinese screen, and it's going to do okay. The other way to go is... You know, you and a bunch of buddies get together and you shoot something super low budget. Um, you do what you can to insert, you know, homosexual themes in it or, or references to 1989 or, or what have you. Something that's suitably subversive, you get it stamped banned in China. And, of course, you're going to win a silver bear at, at, at Berlin. I mean, it happens every time, right? Uh, now, then there's got to be a third path. But you're not going to, I mean, you, your film is going to be seen by 17 guys all wearing black turtlenecks. Right. It's hard to export, you know, soft power in the movie business that way. And I, I do think they have a real challenge there. And I was talking about this with one of your podcast guests of, of your, uh, Will Moss, earlier mm-hmm. today. And he was saying the same, th- the same thing. And he said, Zhang Ziyi, that's soft power. <laughs> Is Zhang Ziyi soft power? I mean, it, I mean it, sex sells, right? Is she even that hot? That's a good question. <laughs> China's not podcast. very popular. The podcast. number of people who have told me that they don't think oh, she's attracted to yeah, China. Right, her. but we're talking about exporting and apparently uh, appeals more to the... Uh, to the American audience. I mean, uh, I think that China is obviously interested in trying to export the more uh, sort of lower profile soft power, st- low, lower profile uh, culture product. I mean, if, can they get cartoons onto television in the United States? I think for the moment, the answer is no, because of the reasons that Jeremy mentioned. Which you is mean that, people are not lining up to see Pleasant Goat and Big Big Wolf? You know, I think that the sort of the elephant in this discussion that we don't talk about is that it's very hard to be really creative and really subversive in an explosive, exciting way if you know where the boundaries are. Yep, that's the elephant. There it is. I have a sister-in-law who is a very successful screenwriter here. I mean, she writes for television. She writes television serials. She has very sophisticated tastes. You know, we we share a lot of DVDs, and we're always talking about – I mean, she she clearly gets it. But the stuff that she writes ends up being just – I mean, it's extremely low – well, it's middle-brow, Chinese middle-brow, which means it would never have a snowball chance in hell abroad. Uh, I ask her what it is. She says, you know, her producers, her directors, they're all constantly telling her – your audience is that that group of women uh, in the restaurant taking a break and looking at the, the costume drama on the TV. Your audience is those those women on their off hours in the hair salon. Um, you do not, I mean, you're not writing for the the, the Yoku Tudo crowd. That's not what you do. But is it possible now that because there is a Yoku and a Tudo crowd that you can start to write for that's them? That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'd like to see. I mean, Because then if that's the case, then if it starts to be economically viable at home, then, then it's a much more reasonable thing to imagine it can be exported. And then you don't need a full-fledged foreign policy initiative. And is this all just a function of wealth? I mean, is well, it, I mean, China does need more. I was going to say China needs more eccentric millionaires. Uh, who are willing to bankroll some of these things. Right, and I right, think, right. you know, you have that in the U.S. in the beginning of our movie industry. Hmm. And uh, you need that in China. You need more people like that, just, you know, kind of iconoclastic figures and to the extent that they're permitted to do so. But I think money could really talk. And that is starting to happen. I mean, you are having more and more eccentric millionaires with, with strange ideas. Uh, another uh, previous guest on Seneca, Bill Bishop, has introduced me to one of them, a guy with an idea for a... Uh, a novel that's pretty crazy. And I, uh, even in the government, I mean, my dealings with the Ministry of Culture, I've been surprised at how laid back and how open-minded some of the officials are. Now, unfortunately, the Ministry of Culture is not the most powerful ministry in the government. Uh, quite the contrary. 
but it is interesting to see that there are quite enlightened officials, and one does hope that eventually this may go somewhere. But maybe not. You know, the system is... Uh, this is on their plate now, though. I mean, they, they, they're aware that they're supposed. I mean, it's it's part of their marching orders. Well, now. one of the things we did for them was organize a forum, and we invited some foreign guests who knew about various aspects of culture to talk about what they thought China could do to uh, sell or sell its cultural products, as they call them. And the people were quite frank, the guests, and it was uh, met with uh, you know the re- the audience was receptive. Um, Again, the audience was receptive. What are they going to do? Maybe nothing. But this wasn't something I could have imagined a few years ago. I think that when you look at it, you see that the that the market for these things is, is market driven, not supply driven. It's you know, in the sense, if you look back at the Korean wave that came up a few years ago, that the Korean wave, of course, was this sudden burst of popularity of, of Korean soap operas and Korean pop music, which became very popular in China. In fact, Hu Jintao once was quoted saying, "And cosmetic surgery." <laughs> yeah, and cosmetics. It was, he was quoted saying to the Korean president how sorry he was to miss the final episode of Daekum Gang, the the Korean uh, <laughs> uh, court drama. But but, I mean, so what's remarkable is that nobody would have said, you know, Korea is really going to become this this powerhouse for exporting to Asia. It was just because the stories clicked. They were speaking to their audience. It wasn't a state-run initiative to do it. Yeah, interestingly, I mean, here at, at um, in my job at Yoku, I get to see what people actually watch. And interestingly, I mean, there's, there's this impression among the expatriates that they watch an awful lot of American television. That's simply not true. They watch, I mean, in order, mainland Chinese, then Taiwan, then Hong Kong, then Korea, not surprisingly then Japan, and finally the output of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I do think also, look, China right now is programming for China. The same reason that China is not all that ultimately very interested. It's not all that interested in American pop stars means it may not be that good at taking its own pop stars and exporting them. Oh, right. I mean, who has actually hit internationally, I mean, in, in music? Celine. Oh, Celine. Oh, Celine Dion. I'm <laughs> saying in China, the only foreign oh, right, star no, no, I can no, think no, of right. to I mean, really I'm, succeed I'm here. More than that. I thought there was some more stars than that. But oh, yeah, there are plenty, there are plenty of stars who have hit here. But you here. mean Chinese Richard stars Clayton, who have gone abroad. <laughs> right. Yeah, Chinese Can't stars who have gone abroad. Right. Well, Kaiser, I'd... what about your band? <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny. I mean, uh, actually, for my band, the whole trick is always trying to, you know, has been to try to make it Chinese enough to, that it'll be acceptable here. We're um, probably needing to move on uh, before we talk any more about my humiliating experiences in rock. <laughs> So I want to move on in the last few minutes that we have here and talk about the two biggest plays for soft power that China's staged yet. And those, were, of course, were the 2008 Olympic Games and the Expo that just started. I, I commented earlier that you know the opening ceremony was as in, intimidating as it was inspiring. Gotti, I, I remember uh, <laughs> it was one of the funnier moments. You were actually on The Daily Show during their, their, their sojourn here during the Olympics, and um, I remember you had uh, some pretty funny things to say. To That's that. true. I offered them expert commentary. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as the Forbes Beijing Bureau Chief, they were very interested in what I had to say, very sincerely. Uh, actually, I thought The Daily Show captured uh, the moment very well. With uh, They led off with the opening ceremonies, and this was uh, their correspondent. Uh, what's his name? That again? One, the English dude. Huh? The big guy. No, oh, no Rob. The big guy. Uh, the big yeah, the dude. Marine. Rob. Rob something, rather. Ah, forget Rob. it. Okay. Anyways, they're, they're, they had their correspondent... Uh, we're horrible. We're such expats. <laughs> they had their Who is co- this Rob? They had their correspondent uh, narrating the, you know, they were talking about the opening ceremonies, and he says he was watching this ceremony, the pomp and circumstance, and the, all of the, you know, the amazing organization and planning that went into it, and he said, and I realized one thing. We are f***ed. 
<laughs> and uh, that pretty much captured how the, the impact of the opening ceremony is. As you just said in your kind of opening remarks, uh, instead of just being inspiring, which I think it was as well, sure. it was also sort of imposing and intimidating. There was a very clear moment where you got to see the transition from one century to the next, which was at the closing ceremonies when China handed off to London. Oh, yeah. And China had a significant extravaganza. I think there were people revolving in 360 degrees around a huge globe or something. I remember. And then London essentially consisted of a double-decker bus and Talk Boris like Johnson. Jimmy Page. Yeah. yeah. And Jimmy, Jimmy Page was up on top of there playing a whole lot of love. And then a couple people they grabbed off the street. I mean it was – if you wanted to know about one empire in decline and another <laughs> empire in its ascendance. It Evan, you're really weird. rubbing it in. I mean the U.S. already won the war. With Britain, you don't really have to take them down that Which, which war are we talking about? Mm-hmm. I'm saying. So what about the expo? Uh, I don't know if any of you saw the opening ceremonies for the expo. Again, just pretty magnificent. My big question with the expo was I, I, I didn't have a very clear idea of what it was before I started hearing about the Shanghai Expo. And I don't think many people outside of China are, are all that aware of it. So no matter how impressive the opening ceremony, who watched it? What is the expo? <laughs> right. I mean, when I was growing up, which seemed like ages ago now, the World's Fair was sure. you know, a big deal. We heard about it. you know. But I think it stopped being a big deal at some point. Like and, in the uh, 70s. And, uh, you, know, we, you know, it used to be, you know, Paris, Eiffel Tower and everything. But uh, – and some big new thing would be introduced. one in Montreal. Some new technological wonder. Right. There was the Montreal Expo. I think was – I think it's the last one anybody paid attention to. Right. It's, I mean, it is, for the people who are involved with it, a very big deal. I do think it has slightly outlived its function, which was to familiarize the rest of the planet with every part of itself. I mean, the truth is there's essentially a constant expo on all the time. And, you know, I remember that when reading about the great exposition in Chicago at the end of the 19th century or whenever it was, you know, they had entire booths dedicated to a family of pygmies and a family of <laughs> Egyptians. That sounds like a lot more fun to me. Yeah. <laughs> there are only a few places left in the world where you're still allowed to do that sort of fair, I think. But um, It is a demonstration, though, of China's soft power that a number of countries did take this very seriously and actually put a lot of effort into having a, a good pavilion at this expo. Not including and, the United States. Uh, well, actually, in the end, the U.S. put up like, I, I guess, according to you know, our correspondent, uh, Adam Minter, who will be uh, submitting a postcard, uh, $61 million on on their pavilion with private private uh, corporate Is that a lot or not very much? I think that, that seems like a lot to me. I mean, for, um, you know, for this, you know, thing that I think in the U.S., people just had not paid attention to expos until now, I mean, at least for the last 30 years. Right. Well, speaking of Adam, let's hear what he, what he has to say. Uh, I think he's going to be talking a little bit about how other countries have sort of run their booths and whether they're knuckling under into, under and sort of falling under the spell of Chinese soft power. Every day at 9 a.m., the turnstiles begin to spin at Expo 2010. The Chinese visitors are the most aggressive through the gates. First, they stop for a photo in front of the Towering China Pavilion. Then they rush for a reservation to the China Pavilion. From there, most of them, perhaps 80%, rush toward the European pavilions. In effect, they go from the towering symbol of the world's great emerging power to the exquisite, if mostly empty, symbols of the world's past powers. Yet most of these anxious Expo 2010 visitors, to my somewhat experienced eyes, miss the obvious symbols of China's emerging soft power. Allow me to name a few. The Moldova Pavilion, the Tajikistan Pavilion, the Somalia Pavilion, the Eritrea Booth, the North Korea Pavilion, the Cuba Pavilion. What do these buildings and booths have to do with soft power? 
Each of them was paid for in large part, sometimes entirely, by the Shanghai Expo 2010 organizers. Why? First, China was determined to have more countries attend its expo than any other expo in history. To do that, it had to expend financial resources to bring countries that couldn't muster the financial or political means to do it themselves. Second, Expo 2010 is a premier opportunity for China to demonstrate its diplomatic priorities and initiatives. For example, the Africa Pavilion. With its 43 developing African participants, this is the perfect soft power symbol. Just as almost all of these nations receive Chinese aid in some form, they also receive prefabricated booths at Expo 2010. A friend from a European country who has a pavilion at the Expo refers to it as, quote unquote, the trophy case. That might be a bit strong, but the point is well taken. Expo 2010 is a sprawling five square kilometer metaphor for China's soft power initiatives and ambitions. It's a point that was brought home to me earlier this evening. I stopped into the Moldova pavilion where, in the back, two men in native Moldovan costumes tend to bar. One handed me the menu, and as I paged through it, I noticed, at the back, a list of Chinese wines. Gratis from Shanghai, one of the bartenders said. The discount is good. Uh, next week on Seneca, I'm actually um, going to be on a speaking trip down in, in, uh, in Australia, where I've been placed in the very uncomfortable position of having to debate in favor of Chinese internet censorship, which of course is the ludicrous thing. Um, uh, it, it's funny, I've been introduced on all these shows as being controversial writer Kaiser Guo is going to speak in favor of Chinese internet censorship, which is of course not what I'm going to do at all. Uh, Jeremy's going to be taking over hosting duties for me. Please tune in and listen to what he has to say. Thanks. See you next week on the Seneca Podcast, and thanks to David Lancashire and all the folks at Pop-Up Chinese for letting us use their fine facilities. Bye-bye. Thank you.